0: but you need to be looking at this. It needs to be part of your compliance program, and really it should be part of your business intelligence program.
1: Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the Executive Session, a regular discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Last week, in part one of my discussion with Tim Smith, CPA, ABV, Principal in TS Consulting, we discussed new regulations in the updated Physician Self-Referral Law, better known as the Stark Law, and its impact on the definition of commercial reasonableness as pertains to practice acquisitions. If you missed part one, you can find it online at mgma.com slash Podcasting. In part two of my discussion with Tim Smith, we build on what we know about the new Stark Law into the reasons why hospital-based practices report operational losses, and what administrative leaders in these hospital-based practices can do to address the topic of practice losses with organizational leaders. So, without further ado, here's the conclusion of my discussion with Tim Smith. Yeah. In fact, as we talk about losses, maybe we should get into some of the depth, uh, a little bit more discussion on why hospital-based practices will lose money. Uh, I think the last section of the Federal Register gave some of the intangible reasons, uh, but there are also some fundamental reasons on what happens internal to a hospital-based practice on how they differ from practices that are independent or those that may have a different type of owner, for example, an investment capital company owning the practice because they operate in a very different environment than if they're hospital-based. I've looked at the information from the MGMA data dive for cost and revenue for years. And we see that hospital-owned practices typically have substantial lower revenue, they have lower operating cost, but similar provider compensation levels, and therefore they will oftentimes On their books, show a substantial loss of internal financial reports. However, because of other circumstances, the health system still finds it necessary to have these practices part of the system. And there are other elements of revenue that may accrue in the health system, even though it doesn't show in the books of the the practices that they own. Can you give some of your thoughts on what is happening here? And then we'll go into a little bit more depth as we go along.
0: Sure, and you know, Dave. I think you are the you and I are the two guys in this industry that have probably published and spoken the most about practice losses. I know I ran across one of your articles from 2011 that I cited um, about this subject, um, and I know I started speaking about it at, at conferences and started writing and publishing in 2012 about this, and I've I've written a lot about it. And you're and you're right. And I want to start off here by talking about how you're right, different buyers think about physician practices differently, physician-owned practices. Generally speaking, the physicians are focused on maximizing their earnings to play out for physician comp, right? Uh, along with kind of their own desires how you know, lifestyle considerations and so forth. Obviously, meeting community need and patient care are, are you know, key to physicians, they're healers, that's what they do you know, that's their focus. We're going to operate this practice to maximize our earnings within these, you know, our, our, these other considerations. Private equity, you know, for them, it's about developing a, you know, a cash flow stream and the idea of building a platform off, uh, you know, from which they can grow the business. Probably, you know, some of them are flippers. There's different types of private equity firms that have different strategies but eventually they're gonna sell it to somebody else downstream. They wanna grow it and make money off that. Um, But they offer physicians different things. There's lots of webinars and things you can read about that. Hospitals are very different in that they come in and physician practices become part of this integrated delivery network concept. And, you know, for them, it's about offering a continuum of care, having geographic scope. Many times they'll employ the physicians because the markets won't sustain physicians. So for community need purposes, they have to hire the physicians, for example. And so you're right. These different types of buyers have different outlooks and they do different things with with Prex's. If you bring in the payers, you know, my understanding from reading the press is that a lot of the payers by physician practices to control referrals, not referrals to the payer system, but to try to low cost referrals. They want, they want their doctors referring the patients to the, you know, high quality, low cost care for ailments. And that was one of their ways to, to try to keep the cost of healthcare down relative to premiums. So as you can imagine, you've got these four different types of buyers and employers of physicians. Who think about them very differently. And you're absolutely right. They're going to do things operationally and strategically very different with their practices. And you're going to get different financial outcomes as a result of that. So I think it's important to understand that these different buyers and owner operators, is the term we'll use in the valuation world, operate these practices differently. So let me, let me give you three keys to how to think about practice losses, particularly for health, health systems. OK, I think the first key is that um, there can be many causes for practice losses. I often see people trying to focus on one issue. In my investigations and examinations of why they lose money and talking to operators and and over the years, what I found is a whole bunch. And everybody tends to want to focus on one. And I would say for every health system out there that's losing money on their docs, there's probably five things. That contribute to their losses. So that's the first key. The second key is that losses are facts and circumstances based. You know, I can list out a whole bunch of reasons. I forget how many, you know, there's a dozen of them or something that we could go through of why they lose money. But whether or not those apply to your specific physician groups is all facts and circumstances based. So number two, be facts and circumstances based in your thinking. Uh, and the third is you've got to quantify the amount. Of the loss contributed by that factor. In many ways, if you can't source the loss by quantifying it, I think you have to question whether or not you can claim that, well, this this factor is actually contributing to our losses. Because if you can't quantify it, I'm a numbers guy, I'm a bean counter, I'm a CPA, I would tell you, if you can't quantify it, I'm not sure you can claim that's a reason why you lose money. And so, I think you know, multiple causes, fact-specific, and quantifying the loss are really the three key. That's the fundamental conceptual framework that you need to start with when you look at losses for your organization.
1: Yeah. Now, earlier I mentioned looking purely at the data MGMA publishes in our data dive for cost and revenue, that we see uh, hospitals having lower operating costs, lower revenue for, we'll talk about those in a minute, what, how, what happens there. But the most interesting element is of course, in order to recruit and retain physicians, hospital systems need to pay a competitive or market compensation to their doctors. And now in a private practice environment, it's a very simple equation. The doctor's compensation is what remains after all the, all the expenses are paid from the revenue the practice receives because it's a closed system. But the practices that are part of a health system, it's an open system that the health system can subsidize those practices. So even if they run at an operating loss, they can compensate their doctors based on the so-called market value of the compensation environment to recruit a doctor of that caliber specialty and the like can you give some of your thoughts on what has happened in the hospital compensation environment that almost requires that hospital to make sure they're paying a competitive compensation level to recruit and retain doctors
0: yeah and this is this is i think a real key point to beginning to talking about losses. And there's, as you know, Dave, we'll talk about a whole lot more, (laughs) Uh, but to, to starting off with, I would say there's a mindset in the industry on the hospital side, which is when we think about fair market value compensation, we immediately run to survey data. And we tend to immediately run to certain percentiles of survey data. And if you go hire a bunch of valuation people or valuation consultants, comp consultants, they're all gonna come in and focus on survey data. And that's the mindset of the hospital side. Well, that's not the mindset of the physician-owned practices or private equity because they have to basically live within their means as you've talked about. But that's, I would say one of the first causes that people have to understand is that if you simply go pull the median or the 65th percentile or whatever out of any survey data uh, compilation, you've basically ignored your, if that's your starting point and your ending point, and notice how I said starting point and ending point, because I'm talking about the exclusive use of survey data to set physician compensation. If you do that, you fundamentally ignore the economics of your practice in your local market. And I would say one of the first causes is that health systems start and finish with survey data and and they're done. And here's the problem. Nobody knows at the median doctor for a specialty in, let's say, MGMA or any of the other surveys, nobody knows anything about that doctor. We don't know. We might know what that doctor's production is, but we don't know anything about their operating environment. That operating environment may be very different than a health system subject doctor practice. And so if you import, if you base solely everything off of survey data and bring that end up to your physicians, you may end up with a loss because that compensation can't be sustained in your market. Or if you add in other factors, it can't be sustained. But the starting point, I think, if you want to really begin to understand your losses, is looking at what are the economics of our product? What are we bringing in for revenue? And what are we bringing it? What are we charging for overhead? And let's start there and then begin to ask ourselves questions about, are our earnings sufficient to recruit doctors and things like this? And we can talk more about this later, but the 65th percentile may or may not be sustainable in your market. It may be too low. I know of markets in the United States where the reimbursement's so high, the 65th percentile is a massive pay cut for doctors. Because the earnings in those markets, the revenue are, are, are there. And I'll point out that CMS was made aware of how the hospital physician industry sector has become so focused on percentiles of survey data. Uh, and people thought that CMS and the government believe that, let's say, up to the 75th percentile was FMV. Well, CMS came out in the regular in the rags in its commentary and and just really disavowed and disclaimed all of the this favored percentile business for F and They said there is no such policy. For example, that the seventy fifth percentile is this kind of Rubicon for anything above is not F and Anything below is F and And they they kind of disclaimed what the industry had attributed to CMS uh, and or the government, although. If you look at the case history with Toomey, that's the position the government took with its expert. But that's a that's a change in mindset that I think the industry is going to have to get used to or or think about going forward.
1: You know, let's talk. You know, that was the compensation formulas used by hospitals in order to compensate their employed physicians. Uh, there are other factors, and we ale- alleged earlier that hospital uh, practices have less revenue. Now, I think the number one reason we see for less revenue happens to be part of their billing compensation, which we'll talk about, but also it's because physicians who are working in health system, when we look at the production of those doctors, that in past years, physicians oftentimes as part of a health system may have not had the same compensation formulas that rewarded productivity, like what we see in the private sector. So, can you just give some of your thoughts and observations about what happens for physician productivity in both hospital systems and and as well as independent practices, and how this affects the total revenue to the organization, which is the top line in this equation?
0: And that's, I I think, that's one of the areas. uh, You know, another big contributor to losses is the fact that most health systems will convert. What what would have been the in-office ancillaries, diagnostic tests, various therapies, and so forth, they'll convert those, move them out of the in-office setting and over to a hospital outpatient department setting because the side of service differential and reimbursement is so much better and higher for Medicare uh, as well as many of the commercial payers that they'll do that. Now, the, what I think what folks have to understand is that for many specialties, physician compensation for that specialty is, in fact, underwritten by the profits or net earnings from those ancillary services. So let's think about a non-invasive cardiologist who is in the office doing cognitive diagnostic work that consists of a lot of E&M codes, essentially, office visits, coupled with um, reviewing various diagnostic tests in order to form a treatment plan. Those physicians make a lot more than their peers, let's say their internal medicine peers, that simply just see patients all day in the office doing the same sort of E&M codes on a day-to-day basis. Um, but they, but they, the cardiologists, non-invasive cardiologists, make a lot more money. Why is that? Well, one of that is because they make money off all those tests, all those yeah. nuclear camera well, studies yeah. and
1: so all, forth. All those tests accrue to the total revenue of the practice that eventually is distributed. Makes sense.
0: Correct, right. And I think one of the fallacies that I see in the industry, on the hospital side in particular, it, well, in physicians as well, is that people don't get that when it comes to doctors, there's this, the revenue they generate For their own professional services. And then there's this sort of byproduct of that, a natural byproduct of how they go about treating patients are these ancillary services. And that helps underwrite their compensation. And, you know, for example, orthopedic surgeons would be another example of, you know, they've got uh, usually their groups have MRIs and all kinds of ancillaries that may have physical therapy and other things that they do where they'll make money off of this. And this underwrites physician comp. So when we look at various specialties, one of the explanation why these kinds of doctors make more than those kinds of doctors is ancillaries. But people tend to think about the profits of those ancillary services, they don't think about it as underwriting physician comp, they think about it separately. And so, yeah, when the hospitals convert it, what happens is that source of, of net earnings, because there's a cost associated with that as well. So we have the revenue and the cost component, and then we have what's left over is the earnings. That's used to underwrite or physician comp. But once you move it out of the practice, it's not there anymore. Uh-huh. And if you pay the doctors the same, you'll lose money instantly. I mean, that's an instant yeah, source right. of a loss yeah. when you do that.
1: And that was also oftentimes the excuse that was given. Now. I've when I've looked really close at the data, I've seen two other factors that even at the same degree of work and that occur, and that has to do with the payer mix of that health, health system-based practice is typically the payer mix of the hospital, and that payer mix oftentimes is not the same as what you see in a commercial private practice. In other words, they'll have twice as much Medicaid services in a health system-owned practice because of their community missions. And of course, Medicaid pays at oftentimes only a fraction of the rate of commercial payer. So that's a factor. And we also can see in the revenue cycle that health systems, for various reasons, collect less of the bill charge. What do you think this means in the context of the physician loss?
0: I I will tell you that on the, the revenue side is very interesting. I will say, first of all, a payer mix, you're absolutely right. If you have a payer mix that has a higher level of poor payers in it than another practice, all things being equal, you're going to generate less revenue. And if you're trying to compete with your physician comp, uh, something's got to give in that equation. And physician-owned practices have to live with whatever their payer mix is, which is why many times you see that payer mix be different than, let's say, a mission-driven health system. I will say, Dave, that when it comes to payer mix, that's one of those areas that I think needs to be fact-specific and quantified. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I can tell you it doesn't matter what organization uh, owns a physician practice. If you're in certain communities, you're going to have one uh, kind of payer mix. If you're in another of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, you're going to have a completely different payer mix. Payer mix to me is always a function of the local market, coupled with, you know, the mission-driven aspect of that organization. And I'll, I'll just name one here in Dallas, which is Parkland Hospital, County Hospital. Its payer mix is going to look probably very different than some of the hospitals that may be a few miles up the road, simply because it's the county hospital and that's where the indigent folk go that don't have health insurance. And so it's a very different payer mix. So I I think when we talk about payer mix, it's not just organizational features. It's also the local market because some of the nonprofits that are in some very affluent neighborhoods in Dallas-Fort Worth, I don't think they have a problem with payer mix. I mean, maybe they do, and I don't know. it, But,
1: <laughs> I, but I doubt that's it. <laughs> a local
0: market. Yeah, that's yeah. a local market thing. You know, the revenue cycle of this, to me, is, it's a fascinating question. I often hear this with health systems about, and there's one client I had over the years that was always, yeah, our, our centralized billing office just has a terrible revenue cycle. They don't collect. <laughs> When I've talked to experienced practice managers about that, what they've said is oftentimes that you get diseconomies of scale when you centralize billing. You take it out of the office where there's a lot of firsthand knowledge. Um, the other thing that you don't get is maybe is disciplined practices of hey, you can't see the doctor again, you know, for your follow-up visit until you pay your prior bill, or they you know they try to get people to pay when they check in. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the perplexing thing for me with health systems is when they point to poorly performing operations, you know, my reaction is, well, why don't y'all fix it? I mean, I don't get it. If your CBO doesn't work, then outsource it. Get somebody that makes it work. I mean, this is the same thing I hear, The kind of the, the corollary to this is, well, our overheads, our overhead's a lot higher. And it is true when you get into large organizations, they often, you know, they have a compliance department, they have IT managers. You start to layer in lots of resources that a smaller practice didn't have. But if you start looking at larger practices, they often have the same level of scale and have all of these higher costs as well. But I look at a lot of health systems, I hear them talk about, are our costs are too high? And I'm, I think to myself, well, why? Why don't you fix it? Why don't you outsource the management to somebody who can keep it down? Again, if your comparison is a small two, two, two doctor practice that doesn't have a compliance department, a revenue cycle department, an HR department, an IT department, et cetera, well, that's one thing. But if you're looking at you know, a group that had 50 doctors in it that you acquired and you ran up their costs, you may wanna take a step back and say, what are we doing where we ran up the cost? And, and is, is the hospital, I, you know, I know this is one of those contentious points often between the physician enterprise and the the overall health system or the hospital side is what are you doing pushing all those costs out to the practice? And I, I know that gets into all these inner, (laughs) inner, you know, intercompany accounting issues, but I kind of look at that and say, why don't you fix it or do some good cost accounting? Yeah. And figure I, it out what you should be pushing out. You know, I,
1: I agree 100%. In fact, what you know, we've talked all around the issue, but I, I'll come back to. In my observations, has been the number one issue why practices that are part of a health system have lower revenue, even if you look at the productivity being relatively similar, has to do with pro- what the concept of called provider-based billing. You know, this is that the you know with the it's that hospital outpatient prospective payment system that allows the hospital to uh, charge a, a separate facility fee for a service. and of course, on the physician fee schedule, what we see is that the commensurate fee schedule is reduced for the physicians. so uh, the end result is that if you're if you're part of that hospital outpatient prospective payment system that a physician billing the same service bills at a different portion of the physician fee schedule, which is about 35% less than what would be as if they were billing under the full fee schedule amount. Now, this for the same service, we see this even looking on physician productivity metrics. For example, hospital-based practices uh, will typically show relatively similar uh, total RVUs for physicians. However, they're hospital-based systems, so very similar physician work components because those are the same, but the total RVU is less because of this reduction in the cost-expense portion. So can you give some of your insights into what is occurring in this environment where you're billing less for the same service?
0: Sure, and I I, I think just to clarify, here you're you're talking about – the idea that, that the entire clinic, not just the ancillaries, earlier we talked about the ancillaries being converted to HOPD. Here you're talking about the entire clinic being converted to HOPD. Is that correct, Dave?
1: That is correct, Yeah, no. And that, yeah,
0: that introduces yet another component of how to look at the earnings of the practice. Now in theory, all of the costs of the practice outside of physician comp and, and maybe some, some related, you know, physician benefits costs, maybe PLI, for example, might be borne over on the, in the actual physician practice entity that's billing. But all the practice overhead should be in that HOPD, the hospital outpatient department. But you're right. When we, when you do comparative analysis and you're looking at the total revenue or, or, even, or even the professional collections of those practices where part of it or, or you know, nearly all of it have been converted to HOPD, the revenues look very different because those revenues are moved into the hospital side rather than the physician practice side. Uh, and so, yeah, that's another complicating factor when you look at, for example, survey data and you're trying to make sense of different revenue levels because that may have nothing to do with differences in pure productivity or payer mix or reimbursement rates and collection rates. It may just have to do with the fact that a chunk of the revenue just is over in the hospital side. As you're saying, Dave, there's some complex issues here because organizationally, as an owner operator, health systems take practices and do things with them that the other owner operators don't do. Private equity doesn't do that. Uh, I mean, they can't, nobody can do this but a health system, right? Because nobody can bill HOPD unless you're a hospital. So, you know, I mean, the payers can't do this, the the United Healthcare practices, private equity can't do this, and physician-owned practices can't do this. So it it really presents a challenge. I like to call it the Humpty Dumpty problem because, In a sense, health systems push Humpty Dumpty off the wall and you you know break it up into pieces. And how do you put it back? (laughs) And so maybe that's the wrong analogy. That's, but you know you got these pieces and parts. And what do you do? You know, Lego bricks. Maybe that's. and
1: And actually, maybe this leads into another aspect, and that is, what advice would you give to a practice executive? in a hospital-based practice who oftentimes when they're in at the corporate meetings that they get beaten up over their practice losses by other aspects uh, other executives in the health system so what advice would you give that practice leader on how can they best respond when these practice losses are brought up because they're oftentimes feeling that they're being picked on
0: here's what i think is that health systems need to go through the following sort of process with their losses. And I think given with what CMS has now said, that ongoing losses do present concern about program integrity issues, meaning start compliance, that health systems need to go through a very systematic and in-depth process to understand their losses. And I think there's, I'm gonna give you a nice little rhyming scheme here. Identify, quantify, and justify. I think you've got to go through and identify why you're losing money. What are, you know, let's go through the list of things that can possibly go wrong. By the way, one thing we didn't talk about, Dave, was how many times services like hospital call coverage, hospital medical directorships, hospital co management. The compensation for those services is run, is paid out to the doctors in their compensation through the physician practice. But there's no intercompany credit coming from the hospital side as a kind of revenue credit to the practice to account for the value of those services that the physicians provide to the hospital as a hospital. Remember, those are the things I just mentioned. Those are hospital operations. And if those doctors are in private practice, there would be dollars coming out of the hospital going into the physician practice. Well, your accounting needs to do the same thing. It would be intercompany accounting. But I I think the first thing for a health system to do is to go through and let's look at all of these possible factors. Let's identify the ones that we think apply to us. Let's go through and quantify what we think applies to us. And then let's go through a systematic process saying, can we justify each one of these loss contributors, based upon, um, does it meet community need? Does it, does it, you know, does it facilitate medical need and things like this in the community? Are these things that we can justify? And I think that needs to be done on a re, you know recurring basis. Maybe not uh, every year, maybe biannually. But I do know that you know this is an area of compliance for which health systems need to exercise some due diligence. and a a kind of a thoughtful, systematic process. When I talk to people about this from health systems, what I tend to hear is a lot of high-level discussion of in theory, here's why we lose money, or in concept, we're mission-driven, therefore we lose money. Um, But I don't hear anybody saying, oh yeah, we've done an an in-depth analysis, and here's why we're losing, and we believe we can justify the losses for these reasons. Um, I think the latter is what's going to. I certainly know if, if uh, you know, it seems to me from what I've read about whistleblower cases, if a health system's done its homework and really thought through these losses, that's going to that's going to prevent. Um, uh, I think a lot of whistleblower cases emerging. Um, if nothing else, the doctors in your organization and the people working in your organization will understand. Hey, we lose money, but it's for these reasons which we think are valid uh, under the Stark Law. And yeah. so I would encourage every health system to, to,
1: to start to work on this area. Excellent comments. You know, Tim, there's so much more we could talk. And I know with your schedule that your time is limited. Uh, anything you'd like to add to today's discussion uh, to summarize and to, bring, and to let, let our listeners have a take-home?
0: I think now it's practice losses are back on the map. It's a fair market value and a commercial reasonableness issue. You don't have to make money, says CMS, for commercial reasonableness, but you need to be looking at this. It needs to be part of your compliance program, and really it should be part of your business intelligence program. You should be looking at your operations, understanding why you're committing the resources that you are, and whether you're being good stewards of the physician enterprise. Uh, And I think a thoughtful, analysis process uh, is what you do to make sure you're being good stewards of the resources for the overall health system.
1: Excellent comments. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I know our listeners will find this discussion most interesting and I'm looking forward to your session that you're going to give at the Medical Practice Excellent Pathways Conference. I think you've got a, a lot of extremely interesting and insightful information to pass on and I'm looking forward to hearing you at the conference. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave.